Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We, I'm excited because we're getting into 2 Timothy today. So we're still in the series called Foundations. We're looking at 1 and 2 Timothy. Last week we finished 1 Timothy. This week we're jumping into 2 Timothy. And so I'm going to invite you, if you guys want to grab your Bibles and open up to 2 Timothy, you can. Uh, We're also going to read aloud this letter, just like they would have done in the first century. There would have been a single copy of this letter sent around to the churches, to Ephesus, where this letter is meant to be, and they would have read that aloud to everybody. And so that's why we're reading it aloud together. You know, between 1 and 2 Timothy, our best bet, we don't have a guarantee on this, but our best bet is there's about six to eight years between there. All right, so we're gonna see a little bit of a different tone from Paul. Now remember, remember, we're kind of opening someone else's mail. I should have said that first. It's kind of like we reached into the, the post office box for Timothy, pulled out this letter that a guy named Paul, his mentor, wrote to him. And so we're reading a letter. It's one piece of one part of one side of the conversation. Now we read 1 Timothy all together. And it was, it's a wonderful letter. It's meant to be read as a congregation. It's instructing the congregation on what it means for us to be a community. So while we hear these things as individuals, and there are things that maybe we need to make some changes are in our lives, we hear these things as a community as well. And we look at our community and we say, okay, based on what I'm reading, what do we together need to make a change in? So we're reading a, a letter that was written 2,000 years ago context becomes essential for us to understand what is happening. And so when we get into this, immediately you're going to begin to see a different tone from Paul because it's been six to eight years. And this is the last letter that Paul writes before he's executed for his faith. And so there's a sense of of urgency in this second letter that isn't as present in the first letter. And so it's kind of helpful for us to keep that in mind, especially today as we read this first part of the letter. A couple of times it's going to come up. You're going to get that sense of, okay, this is a guy who's feeling like the end is near and he's got some stuff to do, some stuff to say, some things to try and accomplish. That's going to come through pretty clearly. Now, I know you guys know me. I know that you guys know I really harp on context. I do think context is important, which is why we don't just go around scripture and cherry pick little verses and we do a whole sermon based on one little verse and we kind of make that verse say whatever we want it to say. So much of the time in church, and I see it all the time, we can make the Bible say what we want it to say if we just choose the right snippets here and there and put them together, which is why in this series we're taking a chapter at a time. It's also why I'm going to sit back down and we're going to put a video on the screen. And you guys probably remember, we've used these guys before, the Bible Project. They do this really great sort of artistic look at stuff. And it's great for kids. It's great for adults. It really puts it in perspective. But they kind of just give us context of the whole chapter. And so it's this introduction to 2 Timothy. We're going to watch it. It's about seven minutes long. But it's going to give us context. What's this whole book about? So that when, we, when I get back up here and we start reading chapter one, we can kind of have that perspective, okay? So we're going to go ahead if technology works for us, and we're going to put that video on. Paul's second letter to Timothy. This is Paul's final and most personal letter. He wrote it from yet another time in prison, and it's addressed to Paul's dear co-worker and protege, the young Timothy. Now, we don't know how much time exactly has passed since he wrote 1 Timothy, but we can see that Paul's situation has changed, and for the worse. He's imprisoned in Rome, which could refer to his time under house arrest that was mentioned in Acts chapter 28, or it could be that he was released from that imprisonment, had another long season of ministry, and then was arrested again in Troas. Either way, Paul says he's in the middle of his court trial now, and it is not going well. 
he's pretty sure he's not going to survive this one. And so out of this very dark situation, Paul appeals to Timothy, who it seems is still on assignment in Ephesus. He asked Timothy to come be with him in prison so Paul can pass on to him the church planting mission he started. The letter's design is pretty simple. There are two large sections where Paul challenges Timothy. First, to accept his calling as a leader, and then, before he comes to Paul, to deal with the corrupt teachers that are still causing problems in Ephesus. After this, Paul concludes the letter. So Paul begins by thanking God for Timothy and his family, specifically for his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. They immersed the young Timothy in the story of the Old Testament scriptures. They instilled in him a deep faith in the Messiah Jesus. And so because of that firm faith, Paul offers his first challenge to Timothy. He calls him to reject any temptation to be ashamed of the good news about Jesus or of Paul who's suffering in prison for announcing that good news. Now, the reason Paul needs to emphasize this is the negative stigma that he gained by his frequent times in prison. It made many of Paul's co-workers, in fact, doubt his calling as an apostle. He mentions two guys, Fugelis and Hermogenes. They deserted Paul because they were ashamed of being associated with Paul, who was an accused criminal now. So Paul asked Timothy to reject any fear of shame and to come see him. Now, Paul knows that this is a costly request. It could put Timothy at risk. And so he reminds Timothy that Jesus' grace is a source of power, which is really important. You're going to need it because following Jesus is not easy. It requires everything that you have. Paul likens following Jesus to enrolling as a soldier who's striving to please their commanding officer. Or it's like an athlete who's training their body for a competition. Or it's like a hard-working, dedicated farmer. All three of these metaphors involve a person who's committed to something bigger than themselves and who's willing to sacrifice and endure challenges to accomplish a greater goal. And of course, the highest example of this is Jesus himself. Because of his commitment to the Father, he suffered crucifixion by the Romans. And similarly, Paul himself is now suffering in a Roman prison. Hardship and sacrifice are inherent to the Christian life. And this is why Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of Christian hope. Or as Paul puts it in a short and very powerful poem, If we died with him, then we will live with him. If we endure, then we will reign with him. If we deny him, then he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he will remain faithful, for he is unable to deny his own nature. God's love for our world has opened up a new hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so for those who will take the risk of trusting and following Jesus, God promises vindication and life. For those who reject him, God will honor that decision and do the same. But people's faithlessness will never compel God to abandon his faithfulness. And so Paul calls Timothy to faithfulness, knowing that it may come with a cost. Paul moves into the second half of the letter, calling Timothy to confront the corrupt teachers in Ephesus before he comes to Rome. Their teaching is spreading in the Ephesian church like a cancer. They've targeted and corrupted a number of influential women in the church. These are likely the wealthy women that Paul had to deal with in his first letter to Timothy. He doesn't offer much detail about the teacher's bad theology. Timothy already knows about it. But he does give us one hint. He says, they teach that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, we don't know if the teachers are following a Greek philosophical rejection of the whole idea of bodily resurrection, and they think it's only really about spiritual experience. Or it could be that they've simply distorted Paul's teaching about the resurrection life that begins now through the power of the Spirit. Either way, the problem is that they've abandoned the robust future hope of resurrection and of new creation. And they've embraced instead a private, hyper-spiritualized Christianity that is disconnected from day-to-day -day life. And so Paul calls Timothy to raise up faithful leaders who are going to teach the real good news about Jesus. They should avoid senseless arguments that result from debating the teachers. In contrast, Timothy and his leadership team are to keep the main thing the main thing. They should focus on the core storyline and message of the scriptures, which in Paul's day meant primarily the Old Testament. These scriptures, Paul says, are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in the Messiah, Jesus. He's saying the whole point of the scriptures is to tell you a unified story that leads to Jesus and that has wisdom to offer the whole world. 
Then Paul talks about Scripture's nature and purpose. He says, all Scripture is divinely breathed, literally God-spirited. It's a reference to the Spirit's role in guiding the biblical authors so that what they wrote is what God wanted his people to hear. And God speaks to his people in the Scriptures for a very practical purpose. He says they're useful for teaching, telling me things I didn't know before. They're useful for challenging, getting in my face about the things I say I believe but I don't actually live consistently with. They're useful for correcting me, exposing my messed up ways of thinking and behaving. And they're useful for training me in righteousness, showing me a new way to be truly human. And this is all so that God's people will be prepared for doing good. Paul closes the letter by reminding Timothy that he's probably not going to make it out of prison alive. So he asks Timothy to come as soon as possible, before winter. He doesn't want to freeze in his cell, and so he's going to need his heavy coat that he had to leave behind. And also, could Timothy please bring those personal documents that he left in Troas, likely when he got arrested. He also mentions Alexander, who's an especially dangerous man that Timothy should avoid. He's probably responsible for Paul's most recent arrest. Paul concludes by mentioning how nearly everyone's abandoned him in prison. And his only source of comfort now is the personal presence of Jesus, who stands with him and will deliver him even if he dies. And so the letter ends. The letter of 2 Timothy stands as a reminder that Paul's very influential life and mission were marked by persistent challenge and suffering and struggle. Following Jesus involves risk and sacrifice. It means inviting tension and discomfort into your life. And these things are not a sign of Jesus' absence. Rather, as Paul discovered with generations of Christians after him, that precisely in those dark and difficult moments, Jesus' love and faithfulness can become the most tangible and real. And that's what 2 Timothy, Paul's final letter, is all about. hope that helps give a, a nice big overview. I think those are really well done. You can find those, uh, all those videos on YouTube. They're free. Uh, anybody can use them and find them. And they are, they're, there's just so many of them. They're, they're, they're really well done. And they're, um, I think they have overviews like that on just about every New Testament book. Maybe every book in the Bible at this point. I'm not sure. The Bible project is an ongoing project. So um, we are going to start reading, and what we're going to do is read verses 1 and 2, and today our reader is Dave, so I'll turn it over to him. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. There are years between 1st and 2nd Timothy, right? There's years between. And it's not like Paul writes an email where he can go back into his Gmail account and he can look and say, okay, what did I write eight years ago? The letter he wrote is sent. It's gone, okay? Um, But his greeting to Timothy in 2nd Timothy is almost identical to 1st Timothy. So you have 2nd Timothy in front of you. Here's 1st Timothy's greeting. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... By the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's nearly the same. There's two differences. Rather than Paul stating that his role is as an apostle by the command of God, he states that he is an apostle according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And so if we're paying attention, you can see here that even in the very opening of the letter, Paul is a bit more fixed on the eternal promises of God. As we mentioned earlier, he's thinking about the end. The trial's not going well. He likely thinks he will not survive. And so he's thinking about those eternal promises. And I've seen this time and time again as I've walked with people near the end of their life, their focus becomes very eternal aware, okay? The other difference is that instead of calling Timothy his true son, he calls Timothy his beloved son. And I only highlight that because I think it's important for you to hear as we gather together on a Sunday morning that that is what God calls you. You are God's beloved. And whenever I can speak that sort of thing, that sort of truth over our congregation, 
I want to take a moment to do it. You are God's beloved. So let me just say this passage from Colossians chapter 3, which is something that Paul wrote earlier in his life. He said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if you have any grievances against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. That is a beautiful passage. And so I bring that up because, again, this is a place where we are told we are God's beloved. But I also think that it's helpful for us to continue to look at the circle of love. Remember, this is where we live. We live in a place that has these boundaries designed by love for God, love for our neighbor, love for our enemies. And inside, we have all these tools, and Paul gives us some more tools. What does he say? Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, compassionate hearts. Some of those are already in there. And he says, remember that love takes all of these tools that we've been given and it binds them together in perfect unity. It's sort of like when Jesus said that those two commands, love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself, sums up the entire prophets and the law. Same thing, love. You walk in love, you step in love, you speak in love, you act in love, and that's gonna bind all of these good gifts together in perfect unity. Let's keep reading. We're going to read verses 3 to 7. I thank God, whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. When we have the context that Paul is writing this letter at the end of his life, we begin to understand his peace of mind that much more, right? Keep saying that. As many people do towards the end of their life, he starts to reflect on his past. He starts to reflect on his upbringing. And he starts by grabbing a hold of the big picture of his life. He says that his life has been about service to God as his forefathers had done. And if you recall, Paul's religious life started as a Pharisee, and his name was Saul, Saul the Pharisee. He was uh, well-versed in Scripture. He knew the law by heart. He was aware of what it took to be purified or what it took to be clean in that system. And as a Pharisee, he would have done some things that he's not proud of. If we look in the book of Acts, the very first apostle of Jesus that was killed, his name is Stephen. And at the end of the passage where Stephen is killed, we see this little line that says, and Saul was there approving. And so we don't know that Saul had a hand in the stoning of Stephen, but Saul, who was now Paul, was there approving of the whole thing. There are things that he did, persecuting Christians, chasing them down, rounding them up, arresting them, and probably, likely, actually killing some Christians that he would have done in his earlier life. And so when we think about who Paul is, when we think about the big picture of Paul, and he says here that he has a clear conscience that has to make us go, huh, really? How is that? Of all the things that Paul has done, all the things he's been through, how could he have a clear conscience? And this is one of those odd things that's gotta be really hard to explain. And it makes more sense if you're the sort of person who has had much forgiven of you. If there's been a lot of forgiveness extended to you in your life, this probably makes more sense. If you're someone that has not led a life where much forgiveness has been extended to you, this is probably harder to understand. Every single one of us has a life before we come to know Jesus. Even if you're raised in the church, there are times, there's years before that, those lessons or a choice to follow Jesus sinks into your life and you really begin to follow him. 
Uh, there's a time before when you devote your life to the lifestyle and teachings of Jesus. And in that time, we all do things that are wrong. We do things that we maybe are not proud of. We treat people in ways that we would never treat them now. There is this time for each of us before Jesus captured us. And there is a time after we devote our lives to him. I very much recognize that in my own life. Rewind my life 10, 20, even 25 years, and there are things that I did, things that I said, things that I focused on and chased after and thought that that's what life was about that I would never make my life about those things now. I would never say those things. I would never treat people that way. But do I let those things weigh me down and burden me? Do I live my life in a way that I'm carrying every single mistake that I've made on my back as I continue to try and follow Jesus? The answer is no, that's not the sort of life that we're supposed to live and that's not the sort of life that Jesus dreams for you. And yet, there are so many of us that struggle to let go of our past. We're so ashamed of the things that we said or we did and we let those things burden us down to where we are barely able to take steps in following Jesus. And we let those things burden us down to the point where we can't even believe that we could possibly be worthy of stepping into Jesus' call on our life because of all these things that are in our past. See, this makes sense if you have been forgiven, if you really believe that you've been forgiven, if you really recognize that you need forgiveness. This begins to make sense that we live in a tension of recognizing there's the life, there's the old me, there is the old Nick, but then there's the Nick that Jesus got a hold of. And the best compliment that I could be paid is if I rewound or if I met somebody who was in my life 25 years ago and they said, man, you're different that would be the best compliment I could be paid. Because the truth is, I am different. The thing that changed in my life is that Jesus actually got a hold of it. And so like Paul, I don't look back on the mistakes I made and carry them with me every day. Otherwise, I don't know how I would take a step forward. So Paul says that he has a clear conscience. It's a combination of taking ownership for what he did, but also recognizing that he lives in the grace of Jesus Christ. That everything that is a debt of ours has been washed away by the work of the cross. His repentance, and this is the key piece. This is the change piece. This is the old me, new me. His repentance was real. On the road of Damascus, when Paul encounters the living Jesus and he's knocked from his horse onto the ground, the Paul that gets up is a different Paul than the Paul that went down. How about you guys? How about in your life? And maybe you can't go back and go, oh, there is a moment I was knocked off my horse. But perhaps you can go back and say, you know what, 20 years ago, I was in a way different place. And I look at my life now, and the 20, the 20 year ago me wouldn't even recognize me. That's real repentance, that's real life change. And that is how we know that we can continue to move forward. He was a completely different person. Now, again, Paul is remembering his own past. He's remembering his, what his life has been about. And in doing so, he's writing this letter to Timothy, and he starts to focus on Timothy's upbringing. He begins to appreciate that. And so he talks about Timothy's mother and grandmother, uh, Lois and Eunice. Probably when Paul first met Timothy, he met that family, he probably was more connected to the mother and grandfather, mother and grandmother, because they're closer in age to Paul than he was to Timothy initially. So he probably got to know them really well, which is why he can say about them that their faith was sincere and genuine. And you know the word sincere? The Greek word there literally means unhypocritical. That's what sincere means. When Paul says their faith was sincere, it meant they weren't hypocrites. What they said they believed is how they lived. What they said they believed showed up every day. And so as Paul gets to know Timothy, as he writes these letters back and forth, as he ministers with Timothy, as they travel around, as he gets him started in Ephesus before he leaves, uh, Paul is convinced that the sincere and genuine faith of Lois and Eunice has been passed on to Timothy which is a reminder to all of us who are gathered here today in person, online, whether you're listening on the podcast later, whatever it is, if you are a parent 
or you are a grandparent, or you are somebody who, who is in that role, whether you're biologically a parent or grandparent, or you act as a parent and grandparents. It cannot be underestimated how profound the impact of you sharing your faith with those kids. It, we can't underestimate it. As you walk, as you share who you are, as you share what you believe, as you share, we do this because, and Jesus is a part of that, it makes an impact on the ones that you're raising. Don't underestimate that. Then Paul says that he's reminding Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God, which is on you through the laying on of my hands. And so here's a pop quiz for you, okay? Do you remember what we said was the laying on of hands in 1 Timothy? Remember that? That, that phrase gets used a bunch. It sounds like we might be talking about uh, prayer, like uh, intercessory prayer, or it can be used to talk about healing. But we said it's not either of those things. Do you remember what we said? Anyone? It's Timothy's call into leadership. It's his ordination. That's what we would say today is ordination. Uh, this is when Paul puts him into a leadership position. He lays his hands on him as sort of an affirmation of that, okay? Um, so when I read that passage, fan into flame the gift of God, which is through you through laying on my hands, I have to wonder, what's the gift? What's this gift that needs fan into flame? What's, what's going on for, for Timothy? Is Timothy burned out? Is he struggling with his commitment to Jesus? Is he struggling with his commitment to the church? What is it that is burned out? What needs fanned into flame? What is the gift? And so when I come across questions like that, we gotta go Greek. And the word gift there is charisma. And I have a slide for it, but I don't never know if the technology obeys us. If you see the word, it looks like charisma. What it means is the divine gift of grace. And grace is exactly what the root word of charisma means. Charis is grace. Paul is reminding Timothy that through the grace of God, not through any merit of Timothy, through the grace of God, he has been given every gift he needs to do the job he's been called to do. God doesn't call those who are prepared. He prepares those he calls, right? So when God calls Timothy through Paul into leadership, God gives Timothy everything he needs. God has gifted him. And then Paul pushes him a little bit harder. He says, for God didn't give you, give us a spirit of timidity, which is just fearfulness, right? God didn't give us a spirit of fearfulness, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Power, love, self-discipline. That is what's been given to you, Timothy. When I laid my hands on you and we put you into leadership, you were given every gift that you needed to do what we've called you to do. And you aren't to be fearful. Don't be scared because that's not the spirit of God. When you feel that fear creeping into you, that is a spirit of somewhere else because a spirit of God gives you love and self-discipline and power. There's a Nazarene scholar named Ralph Earl Jr. and I love how he says it. He says, the effective Christian worker must have the power of the Holy Spirit, but that power must be expressed in a loving spirit or it may do damage. Once again, we come back to our circle of love. We must have the Holy Spirit. We must rely on the Holy Spirit as we go about doing the work that God has called us to. But if we don't use the Holy Spirit in love, then we can do all sorts of damage to the people around us. So if we put all of this together, what we're getting is we're getting a sense that Timothy is second-guessing himself. That's what Paul has probably heard from somebody who has gone back and forth between Ephesus where Timothy is serving and Paul where he's in prison. He has heard Timothy is second-guessing himself. He's probably second-guessing his call. And what we're, we're trying to do, what Paul's trying to do is get his head back in the game. All right? He's trying to build him up. Okay? Let's keep reading verses 8 to 10. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, 
not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Sometimes people misread this, and they think that Paul is telling Timothy not to be ashamed to testify about the Lord because Timothy has been ashamed, all right? Uh, we can read that and think somebody went to Paul and said, hey, Timothy has been really ashamed. He's not, he's not doing his job. He, he's living in a place of shame. He's ashamed of you, Paul, and he's ashamed of the gospel. But the tense that this is written on tells us that that is not the case. And so if you've heard that as the teaching, that is incorrect. Paul is writing this because he is speaking against Timothy's fear. Timothy's questioning his calling. He's in a place of fear, and so he says, look, the Holy Spirit doesn't give you the fear. Holy Spirit gives you love and sincerity and power, okay? Paul knows that that fear is the perfect place for Satan to just step in and start twisting things, and the next thing that comes from the fear is shame. Oh, don't you... You don't really have the gifts to do this. You can't do this. You're not really set up to do this. Look at Paul. Paul's in prison. You don't want to follow in those footsteps. And so suddenly, fear leads to shame. Timothy's head's just not in the game. And so in a modern way, we might say this to Timothy. If I was trying to, if I was trying to sum up what's being said here, here's how I would do it. Timothy, I know that you're questioning your calling but remember that God has prepared you for what he's called you to. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me because I'm in prison. That's all. But that, that's not where it ends. Paul kind of takes one more step and he says, instead of being ashamed, right? Instead of letting fear speak to you and you be ashamed and so you run away, he says, instead of that, I want you to join me in suffering. Go the other way. Lean into suffering. And the, the word here that's used for suffering, it's only ever used in 2 Timothy. It's used nowhere else in the Bible. And Paul is such a character. He does these things all the time where he takes a bunch of words or, or multiple Greek words and he just shoves them together and makes a new word out of them. All right? And so Paul has taken three Greek words here and they are suffer, bad, together. Puts them together into one word that means suffering. So there's this communal feel Paul knows it's bad. Paul knows that suffering is a part of this whole following Jesus thing. And so you can picture it this way. Imagine that you went to get your mail Monday morning or Monday evening, whenever it comes to you, and you pull out an uh, invitation, right? It's beautiful. It's got like gold plating, lettering. It's like swirly, all calligraphy. It's gorgeous. And it says, please come join me in suffering bad together, RSVP by this date. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, what would you RSVP? I mean, that's, that's essentially what Paul is asking Timothy. Don't give in to the fear. Don't let the fear grow into shame. Rather, lean into suffering with me. Join me in suffering. What would your RSVP be? I mean, the big question for all of us is, how in are you? In this following Jesus thing, how in are you? Do you believe this so deeply? Is it such a part of your life that you are willing to go through the suffer bad together thing? Ultimately, that's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. Do I do this because it's easy? Do I do this church thing because it's where my friends are? Do I do this thing because I like being able to tell people I go to church? Do I do this because I just love new pieces of information and I like remembering facts? Like, why do you do this thing? Why do you follow Jesus? Because when the call of Jesus gets hard, and it will, are you still in? Are you still willing? Will you still RSVP? Paul's life of ministry has been hard. I mean, just read the book of Acts sometimes, sometime. Paul's life, not that there hasn't been good things, don't get me wrong. I mean, Timothy is a perfect example of a great thing in Paul's life. But at every turn, he's been stoned and shipwrecked. He's been bitten by snakes. I mean, he's been, he's been put in prison I don't know how many times and beaten. And all, I mean, now he is looking his execution in the face. His ministry life has been full of suffering. 
And he is writing to Timothy to encourage him. Hang in there. And maybe a better way to say it this morning is not encouragement, but Paul is literally writing to lend Timothy courage. Lend him courage. That's what's happening when you come to church, right? When you're going through a chronic illness of some kind or chronic pain and you sit down next to somebody and you tell them about it and they say, let me pray for you or I care about you or I love you or hang in there. They are lending you their courage. They are trying to give you, supplement your courage. That's what encouragement is. And that is what Paul is trying to do for Timothy in a time and a place in his life when he is really struggling, when he doesn't know if he has what it takes when he's questioning how in he is, Paul is lending him his courage and saying, look, it's worth it. He also doesn't want Timothy to be caught off guard by the fact that suffering is gonna come. And I wouldn't want any of you to be caught off guard by that either. Whether it has already been the case or someday will be the case, part of, call, part of our calling of following Jesus is that we will suffer like him. We will suffer with him. And sometimes that's in a very literal way. And sometimes it's not in a literal way. Suffering is a part of this call of being in this world, but being a part of a whole different place. We are foreigners and strangers in this place. We live by a different code than this place does. And that puts us at odds with this world at many times and in many ways. Take heart. Be encouraged. Don't give up. Bad suffering together may come, but we are together as it does. I think that all of this says a lot about, uh, says a lot about Paul. If you think about the fact that Paul is in prison again, and now Paul is really facing his execution, and he's like, I have courage enough that I can spare. I know why I'm here. I know what I'm doing enough that I can give courage to Timothy. So I'm gonna take the time to write this letter and encourage my beloved son in the ministry that he's in right now. That says a lot about Paul. And so I think another question that's fair to ask of us as we read this letter here and now today is as you go through bad times, I'm not ever gonna preach a gospel that says that you're gonna be healthy and wealthy and all that stuff. That's never gonna happen here while I'm here. Everybody has bad times. Everybody goes through hard things. Tragedy strikes every single person. And the question that we have to ask is when we're in the midst of those really rough times, can you still be an encouraging person to the people next to you? Will your faith survive those times? And can you still love on the people who are around you, who God has given to you? Can you live in this place even in the worst of times? Let's keep, oh no, before that, I almost forgot. This is my favorite part of the whole sermon today. Oh, that would have been so bad. Okay. So in this passage we just read, there's this spot where Paul says, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. I love that. Just keep that on the screen if you can, Mike. For as long as technology allows it, just keep that on the screen. This is my favorite part of the sermon. I love that I can even say that. This is beautiful. It is a beautiful passage. In that, if you can focus on the word appearing, okay, or I guess for you guys it's this way. Focus on the word appearing. And also notice, by the way, that that grace word is actually charis again, and so that's gift, grace, all right? I just thought I'd throw that in there for you. Um, the word appearing is epiphania. And if I put it on the screen, it would look like epiphany to you. And so epiphany is a holiday in the church, right? And liturgical holiday that it celebrates the, um, it celebrates the incarnation of God in Christ. It happens in January. But epiphany is also like a light bulb moment. It's an idea. It's the ting. It's that moment when you're watching cartoons and the light bulb appears over the cartoon person's head, right? Bing! They got an idea, okay? So I'm gonna, give you, I'm gonna give you two examples of an epiphany, and I just typed into Google, example of epiphany, and I'm giving them to you, okay? These are from Google. In the middle of a typical argument with his wife, a man realizes he has been the one causing every single argument, and that in order to keep his marriage, he must stop being such an aggressive person. That's the example of an of epiphany, okay? So he's in the middle of an argument, and he goes, oh my goodness, 
I'm the reason every argument has happened. Ding! The light bulb goes off, all right? He has that moment of clarity, okay? Here's another one. Amy has been smoking for 15 years. She knows she'd be healthier if she quit, and people have urged her to quit, but she just can't. It isn't until she gives birth to her daughter that she has a moment of revelation. She has to quit. She has to be a role model for her daughter, and she has to live as long as possible to see her grow up. And so it's that moment for Amy who holds the baby in her arms and goes, ting, I want to be around with this little one for as long as I can. Right? Does that make sense? The epiphany is the boom moment that you, it's the aha, okay? Um, Jesus Christ, I love when we can simplify things as much as possible. Jesus Christ is the aha moment. He's the epiphany moment of how God feels about us. That is one of the most common questions I hear. It's worded differently, it's framed differently, but from people of all ages, how does God feel about me? Does God care? Does God love me? Is God there? Does he hear me? This tells us from before the world began. I mean, just keep reading it over and over. From before the world began, how does God feel about us? God loves us so much that he sent his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That God that loves you that much through Jesus, destroyed death and brought life. Oh, Jesus is the epiphany. See, to me, this is a brilliant example of how Paul weaves the gospel into everything he writes. And actually, it might be better to say that the gospel is so weaved into Paul that it just comes out of every pore. All right? Like, here's a really gross way to think about it. It's gonna be 90 degrees today. So when you get out of the church and go to your car and you're like, oh, I'm sweating everywhere. Like the gospel comes out of Paul like sweat, all right? Everywhere and everything he does, it's just so in him, right? That's the gospel for Paul. So if you've ever asked that question, how's God feel about me? Does God hate me? God make me wrong? Does God care? Or if you've ever gone so far as to conclude based on your circumstances or based on the way people have treated you or based on the things that they have done to you that God does hate you, this can be an aha moment for you. From before eternity began, God so desired a relationship with you that he gave us his son, his perfect image bearer to destroy death and bring life. Not coming into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And though many people ask the question, how does God feel about me? I've never had anybody ask me the question, how does Jesus feel about me? Because Jesus, no one wonders how Jesus feels because Jesus went to a cross in love. Because Jesus had nails put in his hands and his feet in love. Jesus struggled to take a breath on the cross in love. Jesus looked at a, a thief next to him on the cross and he invited him into the kingdom in love. There's nobody that ever asks me, how does Jesus feel about me? But Jesus shows us how God feels about us from the very beginning of time because Jesus is God. Jesus is God put on flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. As my friend Brad Jerzak would say, as that children's book I read on Easter, Jesus showed us what God is really like. Jesus is the pooping aha moment. If you've ever wondered, how does God feel about me? Jesus showed you. And that's oh so good news to me. That is the gospel to me. That is the words that I want you to walk out of here with. Forget everything else, but know this. Jesus tells you how God feels about you. Let's keep reading verses 11 and 12. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. 
That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Not a whole lot to say here. Just, you know, the, the gospel I just recounted. Paul is a herald of that gospel. He's saying, this is the gospel that I have been meant to bring forth. I'm an apostle of this, and I am not ashamed of that. I think it's interesting that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that, when that's the thing he is warning Timothy against. Don't let your fear become shame. He says, I am not ashamed of this gospel, and he recounts it for us. So don't let being burned out lead you to a place of shame. If you've questioned your calling, if you've questioned what God has laid on your heart, don't let that lead you to a place of fear and shame. Paul says, I have entrusted all of me, my life's work, what I believe, what I'm here to do, the gospel I give you, I've entrusted that to God even on the very last day. And that very last day he's talking about is the day he's gonna die. Whatever day that is, whatever day he's going to face God, whatever judgment day is for him, that's the day he has trusted himself to God. And I want to pray that we each have that sort of confidence, that we each know that Jesus is so good and so beautiful and loves us so much that we can have confidence on that last day, whatever it is. Verses 13 and 14. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is just to say, again, Paul has taught Timothy everything he can. Paul's coming down to the end of his life. He's, look, I've given you a deposit of knowledge. I've given you everything I can. I've shown you the way as best I can. Now it's up to you to guard it. It's up to you to use it. And we have to just, I think all of us need to recognize that, especially when we look at our children sometimes and we go, man, I did my best and my children don't follow God. You know, or a or, uh, youth pastor. I was a youth pastor. I've got some kids that have grown up and gone into ministry, and I've got some kids that grew up and walked away from the faith. Do I, what do we do with that? We've done the best to give them the deposit of knowledge that we can give them. We've done our best to show them the way. We've done our best to introduce them to Jesus. Now what? Well, at the end of the day, it's always somebody else's choice, okay? It's always somebody's choice. They get to decide what they do with that. Timothy gets to decide, is he gonna use what Paul's given him? Is he gonna guard it? Is he gonna hold on to that, or is he not? You can't make that choice for other people. The best you can do is lead them as long as you have them, as long as you're with them, as long as you are over them or, or guiding them or holding their hand and walking with them. Whatever that is, you do your best and recognize that you can trust Jesus with them. And that's what he's doing here. I do want to say this. He says guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And just... I want to caution us with that guarding language because sometimes I feel like it makes us get ready to do one of these. I got to guard my faith. And so instead of guarding my faith, I'm going to go on the attack against everybody else. And I want to guard us against that because I don't think that that is the spirit with, Paul, with which Paul intends this to be said. I think he just wants you to say, look, I'm, I'm giving you this thing. Hold on to it. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. Hold on to it. Okay? I want to say that. Let's finish up the chapter, verses 15 to 18. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy on the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many wells he helped me in Ephesus. Here we go. You got to appreciate that whatever Phagellus and Hermogenes did to Paul, uh, they get to go down in history as people who deserted Paul. I mean, this, we get the feeling again that we are definitely reading someone's mail because we have no idea who Phagellus and Hermogenes are. All we know is what Paul says. For 2,000 years, people <laughs> preach on this. They deserted him. That's it. And so they had to go down in history of, of people that we won't name our kids after, right? There's no Phagelluses running around or Hermogeneses. There's no Cains I've ever met or Balaams or Jezebels. Or they just they get put on that list. Um, I don't know what caused them to do it, but I will say that what Paul is writing to us leads us to believe they probably gave into that shame piece. They gave into the fear which led to shame, and they've become ashamed of Paul. They've become ashamed of the gospel. They probably said, 
Paul's an apostle of Jesus, why would, why would God put him in prison? God wouldn't do that. God's a good God. He'd keep him out of prison. And so if he's in prison, he must be doing something wrong, and so they've rejected him. That's, that's what the thrust of this first chapter would lead me to believe about them. And on the other hand, we can contrast that with Onesiphorus. Um, he was the opposite. You know, on the, the, he's not ashamed of Paul's imprisonment. It says that when he gets to Rome, he never gives up looking for Paul. He keeps seeking him down and finding him. And then he says he's gonna pray for Onesiphorus on that day uh, for the end day, the judgment day. And it's not because of anything terrible that he did. We're not looking at Onesiphorus and saying, oh, that guy's just so bad, we gotta pray for him on judgment day. This is just the sort of caring and loving action that Paul, a mentor to all of these young men, would do for the people he cares about. And so it's a challenge to all of us is, one, are you praying for each other? I mean, that's a question we should be asking on the regular. Are you praying for each other? Because we should be. Should be called to pray for each other. And not just for right now, not just for this moment, but for all the moments to come, for the future, for things that are eternal. We wanna pray for each other because we care about each other, because we love each other. And we plan to be brothers and sisters, not just here and now, but in the age to come, in eternity. We get to worship God forever in New Jerusalem when God joins us and recreates this entire world. Brothers and sisters forever. So let's pray for now and forever. And that's it. There's chapter one for you, okay? Um, on the light of talking about prayer and the importance of prayer, let's close in prayer. And while we're praying, if you feel so led, I want you in your head and in your heart to be praying for the people that are next to you, the people that are around you. And even if you don't know their name, that's okay. You can still pray for those people. Just because you don't know their name or you don't know what the, the hardest thing they're going through right now is doesn't mean you can't pray for them. You can still pray for them, okay? And keep coming back until July when you are gonna know people's names and we're gonna get to know each other's stories, all right? Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Mm-hmm.